We're in Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. Uh, we're also going to spend a little time in Ephesians chapter 2. We want to be in Ephesians, uh, Proverbs chapter 6 first. Uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. And I want to tell you, by, as you make your way there, a little story. One clear spring morning in 1998, Roger and Regina Cook were talking about their church over breakfast. They were frustrated with their elders, who hadn't recognized them as the mature leaders they believed themselves to be, and so they weren't getting the teaching roles that they both desired. On top of that, the worship leader hadn't led the church in any of their in singing any of their favorite songs in several months. The pastor's preaching had been okay, I guess, but it just didn't seem to really meet their needs in the way that they were hoping. And in fact, if they were being honest, it had been pretty boring. But what could they do? Well, they certainly weren't going to go face-to-face and talk to their pastor or the elders or the worship leader Because after all, that was way too confrontational and too intimidating. And besides, none of those people would listen anyway if they did, because nothing was ever going to change. And so they decided to talk to their dear friends, Evan and Anita Carmichael, and get some counsel together. Well, at coffee the next night, Evan and Anita at first defended the church and its leaders, but after a few minutes, the Carmichaels agreed some things needed to change. And so they decided together to see who else among their friends might feel the same way. Within a few months, about 25 friends were gathered regularly to share their concerns with one another, and eventually they decided to bring all these issues up at the next congregational meeting. Predictably, things did not go well. In fact, the church split shortly thereafter, And it limped along for several years after that. But it finally closed in 2005. A developer bought the property and turned the church building into a craft brewery and a restaurant. Now, that's just a fictional story that I made up. None of the names or the dates or the people are real. But the issue that it outlines is... In fact, I could tell you right now about three or four churches that I know of in our district right now in the EFCA. Here in downstate Illinois, where something like this has happened. They're in in the limp along for a few years before your church turns into a brewery or a bed and breakfast stage. And I also remember a more foolish 20-something version of the man who looks me in the mirror each morning who had several conversations over a period of months with a few of his buddies at the church we were attending at the time that strongly resembled this to me as I look back on it now with the benefit of 20 years later. Because we were so smart We knew everything. And we could solve everything that was wrong with our church if people would just be smart enough to listen to us and our great wisdom at 27. 
what we were as prideful. And what, we, what happened was that we missed out on a lot of blessings that could have been ours. And a lot of ministry opportunities we could have enjoyed back then. And we didn't. You know what the problem is? The problem I've been dancing all around about. The Bible calls it sowing discord. And that's what these Proverbs are about this morning. I want to take a few minutes uh, showing you all what God has to say about that. And then look at Ephesians chapter 2 and what God intends for His church to be like instead. So, a few minutes on what God has to say about sowing discord, and then we'll be in Ephesians 2 and look at what God intended instead. So if you've got your Bible, I want to look first at verses 12 through 14, Proverbs chapter 6. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, verse 12, you may not know it, but I, I, I looked this up uh, in my Hebrew Bible this week. And the verse 12 in Hebrew began, begins with the words, Adam Belial. The word Adam is the word Adam for man, humanity, person. And the word Belial is the word worthless, but it's also, by the way, a title for the devil. And so that's why I called this message Despising Diabolical Discord. Because when you are a person who brings discord, you are acting like the devil. That's what God says in His Word. And what do they do? What does this kind of person do? A worthless person, a wicked man. They involve their whole body in sin. Look at this. Talk about speech. They use the tongue for crooked and evil devising speech. Their eyes to wink, their feet to signal, their fingers to point. In other words, all of their words, everything they say, all of their nonverbal communication, all the things that they're saying with their body, are communicating the same message of spreading discord and dividing people. And with their mouth, they sow division. And with their body language, they coordinate the actions of their co-conspirators. Because the thing is, if you want to win power, what you have to do is win some people to your side by dividing them from everybody else. Amen? And, by the way, just to stick my oar in the water a little deeper, social media and politics and opinion journalism all thrive on precisely this dynamic on dividing people, on giving people power by dividing them from other people. Amen? That's how it works. 
the way that you gain power is by getting them to join your side in a debate and in an argument. They depend on sowing discord for their survival. God says the art of sowing discord is devilish and wicked. And he has stronger things to say about it in verses 15 to 19. Verse 15, look at here, look here at God's word again. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What does God think about people who sow discord? Verse 15 makes it very, very clear that God will suddenly and without warning judge such people and there will be no remedy for them. When His judgment falls, it will be without remedy. Why is that? Because God hates, hates, underline that, hates those and, and the sowing of discord among brothers. He considers it and this is the word, an abomination. That's not a word that we use often anymore, but if you're looking for a good definition, an abomination is something that God regards as ultimately detestable. Something that is not just hateful, but is worthy of being hated by God. And it is despicable. It's evil. It's an affront to God. And in fact, verses 16 to 19, if you, if you understand how these verses work in, in Proverbs, there are several examples of this. Okay? Uh, later on in the book, you see, and, and of this kind of poetic form, it says there are this many and then there are this many. All right? later, in the, later in the book, um, uh, Proverbs says, there are three things that are amazing and four that are too wonderful for me to comprehend. That talks about the way of a snake on a rock, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. And the, the point is to emphasize the last one in the list. The last one in the list is the one that is the most amazing about these. Well, in this list... This is a list of the loathsome, if you will. And the one that God regards as most loathsome is the last one. And it's because everything else is a subset of, this, of, the, of the last one. Of the, they're all part of the same uh, genus and species, if you will. But the, this last one is the one that gives rise to all of the ones that precede it. And so you might be looking at the list initially and think, well, well, gosh, you know, hands that shed, shed innocent blood seems worse than sowing discord. But you have to understand how this dynamic works. Before you shed innocent blood, what you have to do first is sow discord among people. 
This happened uh, in the, you can find countless historical examples of this. Uh, in the island of Sri Lanka, as an example, uh, there are two people groups, the Sinhalese and the Tamils. And they lived peaceably for many, many, many centuries. And then in the 20th century, there were some politicians who got it into their head that, you know, if I make my little group, if I make the Sinhalese, uh, you know, kind of my interest group, then what I will do is I will gain power by encouraging them to follow me. And we will crush all of the Tamils underfoot. And of course, the Tamils were not about to take that lying down, so they got themselves their own politician to do the same thing, to galvanize them as a group. And there was civil war throughout most of the 20th century between those two ethnic groups. Hitler did the same thing. He said, you know what the source of all of our problems is economically? It's the Jews. They control all of the finances. They control all of the money and the resources. And if we just get rid of the Jews, then we'll prosper. Then we'll rule the world. Then we'll have a thousand year Reich. Right? You can find example after example after example of that. That before you start killing people, you have to first sow discord among all the people and win part of them to your side. And so God says the most detestable thing in this list is the sowing of discord because it's the root of which all of these other things are the fruit. It's an abomination. So, don't you do it. Amen? Not unless you'd like to be on God's list of things and people that He hates. Right? I would just as soon not be on that list. Because I would just as soon that God's judgment not come on me suddenly and without remedy. <laughs> if it's up to me, I'm going to pick the way of blessing, not the way of God's cursing. These are the things that God hates. So, with that in mind, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at what God's love did instead. Okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. I want to read you these verses. These are some amazing, incredible, just gripping verses to me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to preach through every verse in this passage. I could, and it would be edifying if I did, I think. But, but for the sake of getting you home before 4 o'clock this afternoon... Um, I want to just point out several things, underline several things here that God has for us in this text. First, notice that God, through Jesus' death, has changed our status. Verses 11 and 12 tell us what we were, and what we were was not good. You might want to highlight these words, okay? They're right there in your text. Separated alienated, strangers, no hope without God. That's what we were. In other words, there was no connection between us and God, and no connection between uh, us and God's people. We had no claim to God's covenant, no hope on our own of ever gaining a right relationship with God. But look at what God did. Look at what God did. Verse 13 tells us that we who were far off have been brought near. Our status has changed. Our status has changed. And we are not alienated. We are not strangers anymore. In fact, we are part of the inner circle. We're part of the inner circle with God. How did that happen? By the shedding of Christ's blood. When Jesus died, He died to bring you into the family of God. To make you a child of God. To, to, to bring you into covenant relationship with Him. To bring you and I into a place where we are called His people, His children, His beloved, where we are all part of the people of God. Our status has changed. We have gone from being an alien and a stranger to being a child. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't because of our wonderful specialness, amen? It wasn't because God looked down and said, well, let's see, you know, he seems to be trying really hard. She seems to be giving it her best effort. I guess I'll take them. No. It's in spite of the fact that if it were up to us, we would be working as hard as we can because we were before at going to hell. And God intervened. And he said, in spite of the fact that you don't know me, I'm going to adopt you and make you my kid. How about it? And by his Holy Spirit, brought us to himself. 
and to the point of faith and to the point of trust and membership in God's family. And God has done something amazing in changing our status. And second thing I want you to see, look at the peacemaking efforts that God makes. Verses 14 to 16. Jesus Himself is the peace offering, if you will. You know, whenever two sides were at war in the ancient world, and they wanted to make a peace treaty, what they would do is they would take an animal and they would slaughter it. And they would cut the entire animal in half. They would lay one side over here and one side over here. And so you've got like half a colon, half a heart, one lung, half a stomach, you know, etc. on each side. And you got, you know, the animal split right down the middle, right? And then you and the person that you were making covenant with would, would walk down between the pieces. You see an example of this in when God makes covenant with Abraham. Um, and you would walk down between the pieces. And the idea was that if I break this peace treaty that we are establishing, may what has happened to this animal happen to me. Now can you imagine if our world leaders today had to make that kind of a promise? You know, if, if I break the promises I've made here on the campaign trail, may I be slaughtered and split in half just like this goat. <laughs> okay? I mean, they might still lie to us, but at least it would be a sobering reminder of what ought to happen to them when they do. Right? <laughs> but, but this is what they did. Because the idea was that we want to we make sure that we understand that I'm making a life and death promise here. And what's different, though, about Jesus is that Jesus is Himself the peace offering. He says, he says in effect to us, you have sinned against Me, and you have broken My covenant, and you deserve to die like that dead animal. But guess what? Instead of that, I will die for what you did so that I can establish peace between you and me and I can establish peace not only between you and me but between you and other people as well. It's what God is doing. He is about the business of making peace. In fact, there are three peacemaking effects or actually more than that. Several peacemaking effects here that are, that are here I want to show you. First of all, there's the peacemaking effect between Jews and Gentiles. Two very different kinds of people are all of a sudden unified and made one. Uh, secondly, it says that he abolished the dividing wall of hostility. Now that's probably an allusion to the walls in the temple. There were literally walls in the temple you can imagine there were three courtyards there was one in the in the inner court called the court of Israel where Israelite men could go and worship and it was the one that was closest to the the sanctuary the temple itself where the ark of the covenant and the table of showbread and the golden lampstand and the altar of incense were but outside of that was the 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 this altar of sacrifice, and there Israelite men could go. And then there was a, another courtyard with a wall around it called the Court of Women, where if you were an Israelite woman, you could go there. But you couldn't get into the 
in any closer. And then there was another courtyard, and it was called the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, the court for people like you and me, in other words. People who aren't Jews, who want to get close to God, but who can only get so close. And there was signs going to the inner courtyards that if you were a Gentile and you passed this barrier, that you would be put to death. In fact, they have recently found some of these signs in Israel. They've dug them up. Places where it says, if you pass this barrier, we will put you to death. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. The divided people. Jew from Gentile. And, and what it's saying here is that Jesus in His death has torn down the walls that divided people from Him and from each other. He has torn them down. And He has fused those two people together so that peace might be established between them. And then in addition to that, He has brought those two peoples together as one to peace with God so there might not be any hostility between the members of God's family or between them and God Himself. And so God is in the process through the death of Jesus Christ of smashing down barriers between people, things that separate us from one another, and making peace between us and making peace between us and Him. And He's accomplishing this in the death of Jesus Christ. And the third thing that you need to see, third major thing, is the Trinitarian worship that you gain as this is done. God's purpose in all of this is that, is that the one people of God would worship the one God through the sacrifice of the one Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the one Spirit who fills all of God's one people. And that's the idea. There is one God that we worship uh, uh, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is the Son in His sacrifice that brings us uh, to right relationship with God. It is the Spirit who transforms us and enables us to worship God, and it is God the Father that we give honor and worship and praise to and, that, and by whom we are adopted as His children. And the idea here is that we all share through one Savior who saves us all equally. There is one God. We are brought to Him by the same Savior through the power of the same Spirit. And then all of the persons of the one God make us members of, and this is what the Scripture says, one household of God. In other words, what's a household? A family. Family. One household. It has built us into one temple of God. And by the way, this is interesting. There are two different words for temple that are used in the New Testament. In New Testament Greek, there are two words for temple. There's, there's the word charon, which is the word for a temple complex. The courtyards and the building and the implements and all of that. But then there's another word, naos. And the word naos is the word they use in Greek to denote the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. 
And that's the word that he uses here. When it says that he has made us one temple of God, in other words, the idea is is that the holy of holies that was in the Old Testament, well, that's all been abolished. And it's been replaced with a new temple made up of all of God's people. And that he dwells among us in the same kind of way that he dwelt among his Old Testament people in that visible way in the glory cloud. Only he dwells not in a building, but in people who are together the one dwelling place, the scripture says here, of God. And the foundation of all of this is one person, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and the unified teaching of the apostles and the prophets. If you get nothing out of this but this, get this, that God's purpose among His people is unity. God's purpose among His people is unity. Now, this message, I just have to tell you, this message is not brought on by anything that's currently going on in our church or any issues that we have or anything like that. Okay? One of the advantages of being an expository preacher is that you just preach whatever's next in the text. (laughs) Okay? So, I have no axe to grind. Just saying... God's purpose among His people is that is to unify people who are different from each other into one people of God. Amen? That all kinds of different people would follow Him. People of different races. People of different cultures. People of different languages. People of different nationalities. People of different socioeconomic groups. People of different uh, physical abilities. People of different colors. People of different hairstyles. Different levels of tattooing. People of different levels of body piercing, right? All kinds of people would be unified into the one people of God by the one sacrifice of the one Son, Jesus Christ, that by the power of the Spirit we might all come to worship the one Father who is Lord of all. And that together we might become the one dwelling place of God's presence. Built on the one foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and the unified teaching, Old and New Testament, of the apostles and the prophets, that we might have oneness among the people of God and celebrate what God has done in unified worship. Amen? That's God's purpose. So, In this message, I try to show you the negative, the thing that God hates, and the positive, the thing that God loves. And to be like Moses and to say, today I have set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Amen? If you have been guilty of sowing discord... And I confess to my shame that I have at times, as I look back over my Christian life, been guilty of sowing discord. It's time to repent. 
Today, if you hear His voice, do not turn away. And if God is calling you to repent of sowing discord, repent. Let me get really nosy here. Think about your social media activity of late. It's what you've been posting on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram or Snapface or whatever else it is you know, that you've got out there, right? Whatever all those things are. Does that further the goal of bringing people together? The things that you are putting out there. Does that further the goal of bringing people together or does that further drive a wedge between people? What about the topics of conversation that you have with your friends? You talk critically about other people in their absence. You talk critically about other people in their presence. You ever get offended or hurt by somebody and then go talk to 17 other people other than them? That's ungodly. That's immature. And it's time to repent and to confess your sins to God and to be reconciled to those people and to change what you've been doing. Amen? There's a man who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, Proverbs says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I do not want to be a man who speaks rashly. And you don't want to be that either. We don't want to separate people. We want to bring people together. And then... After that, after you have repented, then as the Scripture says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen? Become a peacemaker. Through the Gospel, God has made peace with us and between us and everyone else. And so that we should therefore proclaim the Gospel of peace and also live it out in our relationships with one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are some challenging texts. Uh, Too often I have been guilty and we have been guilty of using our tongue, using our words, not to bring people together, not to bring unity, but to bring discord and to sow the seeds that grow into hatred. And Father, we repent of that. We pray for Your forgiveness. We pray that where we have have sown these things, that You would help us to pull them up by the roots and not to replant them anywhere else. And Father, we pray that we would be men and women of peace because You are a God of peace, a God who makes peace between those who were Your enemies and who were enemies of one another. Father, I pray that we would be people characterized by sharing the Gospel, 
of peace and living as men and women of peace among all your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.